And the rest of us, we will be in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I have a few micro problems, but I think, is that working now? Great. Thank you. One of the uh, books I read that helped me a little bit um, was called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. How many of you read that? A few of you? Okay. So Stephen Covey writes about how to be effective. And one of the things he talks about, because he is uh, involved in business, especially business management and leadership, is the difference between management and leadership. And he notes, you can quickly grasp the important difference between the two if you envision a group of producers cutting their way through the jungle with machetes. They're the producers, the problem solvers. They're cutting through the undergrowth, clearing it out. The managers are behind them, sharpening their machetes, writing policy and procedure manuals, holding muscle de development programs, bringing in improved technologies, and setting up uh, working schedules and compensation programs for the machete wielders. The leader is the one who call, climbs the highest tree, surveys the entire situation, and says, wrong jungle. <laughs> I think about that story because as we come to the end of well, get this week and next week of First John 5, it's almost as if I can hear Jesus saying through this disciple that idea, that so many of us are working and producing, but it's in the wrong jungle, as it were. Or as he put it, perhaps the most poignant short statement in the history of mankind, what will it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? That is a question. As we come to chapter 5, the last chapter of 1 John, I think we're going to see what John wants to show us about what true life, true success as humans really is. And uh, as we begin, let's, let's start with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. You know that I'm not worthy to come up here and preach this, God. But I pray your spirit would work through unworthy people that you would allow the beauty of your truth, but more especially the beauty of who you are, to shine through. That you would take away any distractions. That you would open the eyes of our heart. That you would break down any veil over our, our understanding. Thank you, Father. We love you. Amen. Now, I am going to do something as we begin that I have not done ever in the 20 years that I have been here. I'm going to read today's passage out of the message paraphrase. And uh, the reason I don't usually do that is because the message is not actually a translation. So it doesn't take the Greek or the Hebrew and work it out to what this means. It is a paraphrase uh, through the English mainly of what this means more in today's culture. Uh, but as I was working through the text in 1 John chapter 5, I'm like, man, this... His language here is, is circular. It's difficult to work through. I'm going to have to explain a lot. I'll go through a lot of what's happening here. And then I read the, the message paraphrase. I'm like, oh, well, that pretty much nails it. So I'm basing this um, on the actual text here, but I'm reading this out of, the, out of the message paraphrase. And in 1 John 5, 1 through 12, he writes this. 
Every person who believes that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah is God-born. By the way, this is in your bulletin if you need, want to follow along. If we love the one who conceives the child, we'll surely love the, the child who was conceived. The reality test on whether or not we love God's children is this. Do we love God? Do we keep his commands? The proof that we love God comes when we keep his commands, and they are not at all troublesome. Every God-born person conquers the world's ways. The conquering power that brings the world to its knees is our faith. And the person who wins out over the world's ways is simply the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus, the divine Christ, he, ex he experienced a life-giving birth and a death-killing death. Not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth of his ministry and sacrificial death. And all the while, the Spirit is confirming the truth, the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, bringing those occasions alive to us. A triple testimony, the Spirit, the baptism, the crucifixion, and all three are in perfect agreement. If we take human testimony at face value, how much more should we, should we be reassured when God gives testimony as he does here, testimony concerning his Son? Whoever believes in the Son of God inwardly confirms God's testimony. Whoever refuses to believe, in effect, calls God a liar, refusing to believe God's own testimony regarding his Son. This is the testimony in essence. God gave us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. So, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever rejects the Son rejects life. This is the testimony in essence. God gave us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. So, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever rejects the Son rejects life. Well, when I'm looking at this passage, and I'm starting to see John summarize all that he's beginning to cross. So he's had three big emphasis. One is about who Jesus is. And the second, as we've seen again and again, is the, that those who are in Christ, we have a responsibility to love each other the way God has loved us. And the third is that we are also to live in righteousness. And as we'll talk about, living in love and righteousness are two separate things, but very much tied in together. I'm going to break this down then into two parts. And these are based on the passage, but they're also a little bit of summary of what we've seen so far. And the first one is going to sound very familiar to us. And, uh, and sometimes that's a barrier because we as humans like the new. But the first one is, is simply this. First point is that we are saved by Jesus alone through faith alone. We are saved by Jesus alone through faith alone. And he mentions that. In verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then also down at the last part of um, verse 5, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then finally, in verse 12, whoever, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We are saved by faith alone. Now, I want to stop you for a second. I know we've heard this before, but there are some things we need to say and hear again and again. Uh, I heard a, a man and a wife went to a couple's counseling, and the wife was, was saying about her husband, you know, he never tells me he loves me. And uh, the counselor says, well, is that true? Look at the man. And, and he looks at his wife and says, well, I told you I loved you 20 years ago when we got married, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. You know? <laughs> now, that's not going to work. 
because we, as people, there are some things so important that we need to say them, but also to hear them again and again, right? And this is one of them. Our salvation, everything that God wants to give us, all good things come through Jesus alone. And we receive them, not by being good enough for Jesus, but rather by simply faith in Jesus. And that's what he brings out in this passage at least three times. What does faith mean? Let's go a little bit deeper here. There's actually three words that are all translated, all translate the same Greek word here. One is faith, one is belief, and one is trust. And, and so the Bible, the English Bible translations are going to use either one of those depending on what the emphasis they think in that passage is. But, but I think it works like this. Faith is belief and trust together. Faith is belief and trust together. And in some passages of Scripture, one of those is emphasized more and, and some the others. What do we mean by that? Well, first, having faith in, in Christ, this saving faith that changes us, that saves us from God's wrath, that makes us his child, begins with believing something. Believing something. And we're told that here. We're told that we must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, also means the Christ. And the idea here is the one that God has sent into the world to save mankind. And then also that he is the son of God. So he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a, a really great man. Our, our Muslim friends would affirm that. No, he is the son of God sent into the world as the world's savior and Messiah. And then finally, that his death is a sacrifice for our sins. And John's mentioned this several times already, but here he mentions it in, in a way that will seem rather oblique to us, but the readers then would have got it. And he says he's the one who came by water and by blood. This is the NIV translation. Not just by water only, but by blood also. So he emphasizes it. What, what is he talking about here? Well, he wants to emphasize that Jesus really died a saving death for you and I. Now you remember, John is writing to Christians who are troubled by this false teaching and these false teachers. And uh, so in 3 1, he, or 3 7, says, I am writing to you for this very purpose, so you don't go astray by those who are trying to lead you astray. What were they teaching, these false teachers who are? Tempting to lead them astray. One of the things they taught, and we, we, if you look back, remember back the very first week, so like 12 weeks ago when we started First John, one of the things they taught was that Jesus and Christ were not necessarily the same thing or the same person. There was a man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a great man. He was a good man. And then there was a spiritual being or the spiritual force called Christ. And at his baptism, at Jesus' baptism, this spiritual force came upon Jesus and then allowed him to have the power and the wisdom and the, and the miracles that he was doing. But then at, at his crucifixion, before he died, this force left him because, in their view, a spiritual being could not suffer something like death. Justice, no. <laughs> That's not it at all. This is the one who came by water. Now, what's he mean by that? Well, he could mean baptism, the water of baptism when he was baptized. I tend to think he means more he came as an actual physical being, being human, being born like we are. Remember in 1 John 3, he talks about uh, those who are born by water and by spirit, and the water referring to natural birth. Same writer. So I think that's probably what he means. He came as, as though he was the son of God and it, it took on a human body. He was born as we are, as humans. But he also came by blood. 
He comes to us not only as a human, is the idea, God in human flesh, but in that role, taking upon our sins on the cross. And so we find forgiveness by asking him to forgive us and change us. And so that's what he means, I believe, in all this, that everything that God wants to do in us, and he has so wonderful plans, is funneled through the person of Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah sent from God who adopted a human body like we have to be like us, but also to bear our sins on the cross through his death. Now, that is what I believe is the, more or less the content of what we have to believe. But we should remember that belief by itself, intellectual belief, is not really saving faith. Rather, it's belief combined with trust. And again, these are often translated the same way or different ways in Scripture. But the idea is that believing and trust are together. This is a choice, not a forced belief or not an intellectual belief. Okay, how can I illustrate this? Then I remembered. Uh, Let's see here. Becky. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Ongoing issues that we have. I put it like this. Faith is not an intellectual certainty, but a trustful choice. Yes, there are intellectual components to to the gospel, as we just mentioned. But saving faith is not primarily believing those things are facts or even true, but rather trusting myself to this person because I believe those things. And sometimes our level of certainty in the intellectual facts can go up and down. And sometimes people, we, I, I've talked to many people, and uh, sometimes, well, I just don't have enough faith. And what they mean by that usually is, I don't have enough intellectual certainty. Let me tell you, intellectual certainty is not what we're going for. It's not what God's after. Because you can choose to believe even when you have doubts. And in fact, the presence of doubts makes our faith really faith instead of knowledge, or in the New Testament sense, sight, acting on what we see. Let me put it this way. I tried to illustrate this. This is certainty level, low to high. Now, very often someone says, I have great faith, if they mean their great certainty level is up here. Uh, But the trust level is probably more important of the two. I'm not saying we don't have to believe certain things. If we don't believe them, we're probably not going to trust God. But the main point is this. It's here, being on this side of the curve or the graph, as it were, that is where saving faith takes root. And you can have that saving faith even if there are times doubts in your mind intellectually because primarily it's not intellectual certainty but a choice to trust your life with someone. There's a great illustration of this. This guy named Charles Blondin. Uh, he was a French guy. That was his stage name. Uh, 1899. 1899, he starts... Uh, 18, I'm sorry, 1859. He starts uh, these amazing feats of crossing over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. So he, he hung a three-inch manila rope, stretched 1,100 feet across the falls at a height of 160 feet. Uh, and then he walked across it. And not only that, but in the ensuing days, he accomplished these amazing feats while walking across the falls. Once he executed a backward somersault, once he crossed while blindfolded, while pushing a wheelbarrow, once on stilts, 
Once in the dark, with Roman candles flaring from both ends of his balancing pole, might have been on 4th of July, one time, he even stopped halfway across, cooked an omelet on a portable stove, and then lowered it to a boat below him. And then on September 15, 1860, he accomplished his most amazing feat of all with something like this. Before crossing the rope on that particular day, Blondin turned to the crowd and said, do you believe I can go across this? Yes, yes, yes. Do you believe I can carry someone on my back across this rope? And the crowd shouted, yes, yes, we believe you can. And he asked for a volunteer. <laughs> no one raised their hand, so he deliberately pointed at one man. How about you? The man says, hardly. You don't think I'm going to risk my life that way? And then Charles pointed to another man and said, what about you? And the man says, yes, I believe you can do it, and I will trust you. And he got on his back. And this is a picture. Charles Blondin. Now, here's the deal. The man on his back was actually his, his manager, Harry Concord. And uh, he, he knew the person. Not, he had not just seen what he could do, but he had learned to trust him as a person. You see, the others said that they believed. They had this intellectual belief. But the kind of faith that we're talking about here means that because of that, we are trusting someone with our very life. And if this isn't true, then I'm a loser somehow. All right, so that's what we mean when we say we are saved by Jesus alone through faith alone. Now, here's the second part. Here's the second part. Our salvation is a new birth into a new kind of life. So, so we're saved. But what does this salvation mean, right? Well, in the New Testament, there's a much greater emphasis on what we are saved to than what we were saved from. Yes, we are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from the final punishment. But the primary emphasis is that we are saved into a new kingdom and more as new creatures. So the kind of life that we are born into is a different kind of life. One of, one of the things I, I wish had been different about the history of English translations is the way that they translate into English, they translate it as eternal life by John 3.16, right? The gift of God is eternal life. And, uh, and we, we think of that as meaning, well, it's kind of like this life, but it goes on forever. And that's not what it means. In fact, the, the phrase itself is more literally life of the age to come. Life of the age to come. So the primary emphasis is not on its duration, but the quality. There is a, a kind of life that's marked of that age, and that's the life that we are called to. Yes, it is unending. But that's not the main focus. The main focus is on the quality, not the quantity. I, I was trying to kind of illustrate this here. You know, <clears throat> right now you have life. You are born into the world with life. And the, there's a Greek word called bios. Obviously, we get biology from that. Animals have this life. We have this life in Adam as we're born into a, a, a humanity of which Adam, remember Adam and Eve, is the head. And this is used, usually a Greek word called bios. But when the New Testament wants to describe this kind of life, they very deliberately choose this word, zoe. Why? Because Christ's life is not Adam life. It's just simply extended larger. Christ's life is a different quality, a different kind of life. And they want to get that point across. 
one way of thinking through this is just by comparison. So this is your BIOS life, right? And uh, we have 70, 90 years in this body. And, you know, sometimes things go well. Sometimes things are, are very painful. And, uh, and we have our ups and downs. And then we die. All right. But BIOS life doesn't mean we just escape the grave. But rather, it's, a, it's marked by this kind of quality where there is a change within us. And we become a different kind of being. I'm not even sure we'll have the same type of physical body. Now, we will have a physical body, but and when Jesus came, he, he did have a body that appeared like others. I don't know if that was by its nature or if that was a concession to the, to the understanding of the people involved. I'm not even sure about that because we probably couldn't understand that. Well, let me give you an example of this. Anybody know what this is? <laughs> not, I know it's a caterpillar. What, what kind of caterpillar? Monarch, very good. Um, and the idea is that each caterpillar has a type of existence or life, and yet it's transformed into something different. All right, that was an easy one. Uh, I have a feeling you're not going to get the rest of these, unless you're really into caterpillars and butterflies, in which case my hat's off to you. But this is a spice, to, spice bush swallowtail. Isn't that cute right there, you know, with his little... And yet, those are actually fake eyes, I think. Um, Notice how different it is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this guy's not very attractive. I see Abby going, eh. Um, but look what it becomes. You see the point I'm trying to make? Just because it has more life doesn't mean it's the same life. Just because we have the more life doesn't mean it's the same life. It's entirely different. Got a couple more here. Isn't that an interesting one? Now, that's a good-looking fellow right there, right? <laughs> Some of us can identify with this guy. <laughs> but here's hope. Here's hope. And it's not becoming a better-looking moth. It's not a longer-living moth, but a transformation. And, and that's the last one. That's what I'm trying to get across. So in the passage here, you'll notice he talks about being born of God born again. And, and he uses that so often. I think it's mentioned like three or four times in the previous chapter, chapter four, because that's the idea. We are born into a new kind of life. We have born the image of the earthly man, uh, Paul says in Romans 5, Adam, he's, he means. And we will also bear the image of the, of the Son of God. So in this life, we have been given this kind of life. And, and in this life, you'll notice he also emphasizes here, as he does elsewhere in the book, two characteristics of this life. And he, he mentions before in 3.3, 3, we don't know what this life is going to be like. We've never experienced it. And can you imagine trying to explain to a caterpillar what, what it would be like to fly? I mean, if they had a brain, I, I don't know what they have. Uh, that's some sort of a little tiny brain, I guess. But even if you could talk caterpillar talk, could you explain to them what it'd be like to fly? Could you explain to a blind person what colors are? Now, unless there's a certain level of experience, we can't understand the concepts. So John says, we don't really understand what we will be like. He says, but we know one thing. This is in 1 John 3, 3. We will be like him. 
Now, what's that mean? Does that mean we will all be 33-year-old Jewish males? Uh, no. We'll all be different. And yet, we'll be marked by a likeness to Jesus Christ. And if you look at the rest of this book in this passage, it's primarily two characteristics. One is righteousness. We will be righteous like he is righteous. And the second is love. Maybe the dominant theme of this book. person who is like Jesus Christ will have a natural righteousness, and they will have a, a giving love. Those two are not, by the way, separate things, necessarily. I, I, I love how uh, Paul, in, first, or in Romans 13, he says, if you love, you have fulfilled all the righteousness of the law. Why? And then he goes on, well, all the commandments, don't murder, don't steal. If you simply love your neighbor, you're going to do all those things, right? That's the idea. And that's why I think John points out in, um, in the last part of verse 3, his commands, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, or the word is heavy, but they mean Something we can't do. Why? Because there is something inside us that transforms. It would be a burdensome thing to expect a caterpillar to fly, but not a butterfly. Because there's a transformation taking place. But also, apart from that, there is within us, the, the transformation is this inward thing that replaces our self-love and self-love and self-focus for love for others and, focus, and, uh, and a focus on their needs. I heard a story of uh, someone described what happens to the law and righteousness of Christ in this way, that there was a, a man, very brutish, harsh, demanding, uh, a, a, you know, almost a slave driver type of man, and he married a woman. And you can imagine how that went, right? So the man would go off to work. The wife would stay at home with the, with the kids and the house and everything. But before he would go to work each day, he would write a long list of all the things that she had to accomplish. And there would be hell to pay if she did, because every night he would come home and they would go through the list and see if she had accomplished them, and, and if so, how well. In the course of time, the man died, and, and she was ashamed to admit, but it was real, that she was relieved. And a little bit further on in time, she met a man who was the exact opposite of her first husband in every way. He was kind and gentle and considerate and loving, looking out for her needs. And uh, one day, as she was up in the attic going through some old clothes, she pulled out uh, some clothes, and there in one of the pockets, there was a, she found one of the old lists from many years ago. She kind of trembled when she opened it, but as she did, she began looking and reading, and she realized that everything that she had been, been demanded to do by her first husband, she was doing for her second, without being asked or told, out of love. See, there is an inward type of response to God that values him and his righteousness and other people that ultimately that's our, our destiny. We're not going to want to sin. We're not going to want to defraud or hurt others or use ourselves to get advantage over them because we'll be transformed by that kind of love is the idea. So we will bear the likeness of Jesus, a natural righteousness, and a giving love. All right. 
last part. Let's, let's wrap this up with application. Let's wrap this up with application. What do we need to do here? Well, I'm going to put it this way. Our need, your need and my need, is not better performance, but a greater understanding and a deeper trust. So you remember the, the movie Saving Private Ryan, and it's a long story, but they go in, this, this troop of men, there's about 12 or, or 16 men, and they go in in the thick of the battle and all the confusion and chaos of, of the front lines to save uh, a, a man named Private Ryan and, and bring him out so that he can be restored to his family. And um, most of the men in that mission sacrificed their life eventually for, for that goal, following orders. And at the end, the captain, who is dying because of his wounds in that final battle, looks at Private Ryan and says, earn this. Earn it. You know, when I saw that the first time, my heart just sank. What a burden to place on that man. I want you to know, you are never told anywhere in the Scripture after all the things God has done for you and loved you and sacrificed himself on the cross, you were never told one time to earn this. The whole idea is ludicrous. How could you earn that? But rather, it's not our performance that, okay, we need, we need to be better. We need to work harder. We need to go to church more. We need to read our Bible more. We need to witness more. We need to sin less. It's not so much that focus that's going to get us forward because it's not our performance. It's rather a greater understanding, and a deeper trust. What do I mean? Well, understanding God's goal and purpose for your life. God's goal and purpose for your life. If we get this right, if we get this right, it will be such a freeing thing. I put it this way. God's purpose and goal is not to make your Adam life more successful, but to displace it with Christ's life. And you can see that very, very well summed up in Romans 8, 28 through 29. This is the goal. This is God's goal for you. It's in the context of that that he says, God works all things out for the good. That's how he's defining your goodness and mine. And, and you know, as I was reading this, it occurred to me, almost all the things that cause me anxiety are about the Adam life. I'm sure you're way more spiritual than that, right? Um, but that's me. Almost all the things I pray about are about Adam life. Well, not all. But very often we find ourselves, we're praying for things that aren't going to matter in light of eternity because they're related to this Adam life, this bias life that gives way to something eternal and better. And uh, someone said, that kind of praying is like worrying on our knees. Worrying on our knees. It's when we come to understand that most of the things we value and treasure and most of the things we have anxiety are about the Adam life and God is not so much interested in making that life better or what we want it to be as transforming us into new beings who have Christ's life. That is when we begin to say with freedom, Lord, your will be done and not mine. And I'm okay. It's going to hurt. I'm okay if this part of my Adam life is not the way I want it to be because I'm trusting you that you're using this for my good in my Christ life. I uh, want to go to the last point here. 
Trusting his goodness, his wisdom and timing. I've got a couple quotes from famous thinkers here. Trusting his goodness, wisdom, and timing. What I mean by that is we are going to have things that are desperately wrong in our lives. Not just things that we don't like. Not just things that are unpleasant to us personally. Things that are wrong. There is wrongness and evil and death and sickness in this world. And it will affect us. And our challenge is to trust God's goodness in the midst of that. To trust his wisdom and his timing. That he knows what he's doing. And that what he allows to come into our life isn't a punishment. It isn't because he's, he's mad at us. It, it's, it's part of the parcel of this world, and yet he is greater than that and is able to weave that into his perfect wisdom and timing. I want to sum this last part up. <laughs> I'm going to quote a few famous theologians, starting with uh, Sheriff Woody. Uh, you remember that, that scene in the first Toy Story where you know, Buzz Lightyear thinks he can fly, and uh, getting into an argument. What he says, you can't fly. Of course I can. And so he, he climbs up onto a bedpost, bounces off a ball, goes through the you know the Hot Wheels loop, goes up the fan, spins around, falls, uh, on, lands on his feet. And uh, what he says in frustration, that's not flying. That's falling with style. You know, I'm going to paraphrase him. I'm going to paraphrase him. Don't confuse true life with dying with style. Don't confuse getting more of the things of this life, making this life better, making my family, my career, my home, my situation, all these things more what I want them to be. Don't confuse that with true life. That's just dying with style. If you get all those things just the way you want, that's all the best that it is. All right, who else we got here? We're going right from Sheriff Woody to Soren Kierkegaard. Life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forwards. Now, what does he mean? He means it's like a novel, a book, this life that you are, I are in. And the, the thing of it is, there is something to come that God is working towards, that's towards the end. And we're not going to understand everything in this life, all the circumstances I've just been talking about, until we're there, until we're able to look back with God's vision and with retrospective wisdom and see how it all fit together and what it meant. But the challenge is, and this is why we have to live in trust, the challenge is we have to live forward. We have to live here working towards that instead of looking back on it now and figuring it all out. And that's our challenge, is to live this kind of life where we're seeking and trusting God and, uh, and letting him work out all those things. All right, two more here. I like what Charles Wendell said. He talks about trusting God, whatever he thinks is best, whatever time he chooses. But this kind of trusting doesn't come naturally. It's a spiritual crisis of the will in which we must choose to exercise faith. Spiritual crisis of the will in which we must choose to exercise faith. This is a time 
when things are desperately not what you want them to be and they don't look like God is providing and loving you. And this is a crisis by which you come to the place and say, I am going to say and trust. I am all in because I believe in this God and his goodness still. Or not. Or not. It's a kind of exercise because it develops over time into something stronger. You ever heard someone say, well, I wish I had your kind of faith, or I wish I could just believe like you do, as if it was like an on-off switch. No, that's not how it works. It's something that grows stronger within us, and that leads to the last quote. Uh, this is actually by a novel. Faith don't come in a basket, Missy. It come one step at a time. You decide to trust him for one little thing today, and before you know it, you find out he's so trustworthy, you'll be putting your whole life in his hands. I want to end on that note because I believe that God is asking us today to develop this kind of faith and trust, that he knows what he's doing. It's all in Christ, and Christ is bringing us into a new kind of life, and he knows what he's doing. And that starts by one little decision today, not by this determination, okay, I'm going to be this great man or woman of faith. That's not how it works. I wish it did, maybe. It starts by trusting him in the small things about my choices, my sins, my temptations, the way I spend my time, who I give myself to, acts of love. This is how it starts. Trusting him that when I do these things as I think he wants me to, it's not lost, but rather it's used by him in a wonderful and good way.